This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. I had a friend who was part of this group, and she sent me in the mail a tract, like a Christian tract, with her Christmas card that year. And I called her and I said, I'm so hurt by this. Like, why would you send this to me? I'm replying to rabbinical school. Like, you, you know how committed I am to this thing that I'm doing. She said, I love your Judaism. I just want you to complete it. This is what Jews for Jesus is about, to specifically evangelize to Jews. It's like hard. It's a little hard for me to wrap my mind around as a Jew because this is not a thing that Jews do. As soon as that happens, you know that's not Judaism. Hi, I'm Nate. I'm Gail. And this is Full Mutuality. So today we are joined by a a social media friend of mine who I've had the privilege of having a couple conversations in person with. Um, Her name is Arian Weitzman. She is the rabbi educator at B'nai Keshet in Montclair, New Jersey. And uh, Rabbi Arian, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I'm really excited about this conversation. You're so welcome. I'm really glad to join you. So I guess to start things off, um, if you could share with us a little bit about your background, um, where you're from, where maybe a little bit about your origin story and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I have been Jewish my whole life, unlike uh, perhaps some of your guests, <laughs> most of your guests. I'm not walking away from the church. I've never belonged to one. And um, I grew up in the conservative Jewish Judaism movement of Judaism called conservative Judaism. Um, said that a little funny. <laughs> um, I grew up in conservative Judaism and um, was part of that movement of Judaism uh, until I was an adult and um, was raised in a fairly observant home um, with a lot of engagement in our local synagogue. Uh, We belonged to various synagogue communities. I started out life in San Diego, lived there for a long time, and then New Jersey, suburban New Jersey. And uh, when I was in college, I discovered the Reconstructionist movement, which is uh, where I serve now. Reconstructionism is a break off of the conservative movement, um, roughly 100 years old, a little bit younger than that. And uh, Reconstructionism differs in a variety of ways from conservative Judaism, but um, I'll just touch on a couple of those ways. So first, uh, Reconstructionism values uh, egalitarian democratic participation. So we often make decisions as a community in a democratic way, led with guidance by the rabbi, teaching by the rabbi, but the rabbi does not necessarily have the final say, especially in terms of ritual life, right? We want to take a full gamut of opinions into consideration and really uh, weigh the the full values of the community. We call that values-based decision-making. Another way that we differ from the conservative movement uh, is that we are um, rather non-hierarchical. We're egalitarian in many, many ways. So one of of the early ways uh, that looked like was making sure that women had full participation in the synagogue, um, which eventually the conservative movement caught up. Um, basically, all liberal Judaism is on the same page on those on those issues now. Um, but that extended to making sure we had full inclusion of LGBTQI um, participation of our community um, and other forms of egalitarianism. Um, we reject the idea of chosenness. Um, and when uh, when Mordecai Kaplan, the founder of Reconstructionism, 
first set out that proposition, that was a much more radical thing to say. Um, now it is a little bit less radical. Um, most liberal movements are very gentle in the way that they approach the idea of Jewish chosenness, the idea that Jews are chosen by God for a particular mission. Um, and um, don't don't say that in such a, a strong way <laughs> anymore. <laughs> um, but Mordecai Kaplan really felt um, in the 30s, in the 1930s, he was saying, you know, this is elitist, this is, uh, this is chauvinistic, this is a problem, right? We shouldn't be saying these kinds of things. Um, we are interested in democracy, we're interested in the egalitarian, you know, we're interested in the equality of all people, um, and that includes non-Jews. And even though I wouldn't say that um, most Jews who hold a position that Jews are the chosen people are particularly chauvinistic about it, um, it is a way of distancing ourselves from other peoples, right? Um, another thing that is, is really interesting about um, Reconstructionism and is now really shared by a lot of Jewish movements, but was an idea that Kaplan really pushed forward, was thinking about Judaism as a culture, as a civilization, as a people, um, and not just a religion, and um, not just a faith, but a people who have a religion, right? So there's many different ways into Jewish practice that don't look religious. Mm. And that's really something that's been true throughout Jewish history, but Kaplan put a name to that. Um, and we often, I think, across the Jewish spectrum now talk about Judaism as an ethno-religion, right? A religion that is about um, a people and peoplehood um, and all of, the, all of the things that it means to be a people, right? Um, but he really put language to that and Reconstructionist Jews really lean into that idea. You'll also just generally find that Reconstructionist communities are tend to be progressive, um, which makes sense <laughs> given everything else that right, I said. Right. Um, uh, but they look really different in terms of ritual life um, because the movement is not that old and because every community makes a lot of its own decisions about ritual life, there's a diversity of our practice. So some of our practice looks a little bit more conservative or a little bit more traditional. Some of our practice looks a little bit more, um, a little, a little different <laughs> than traditional <laughs> in, in a variety of ways. Um, and so there's, there's a nice, there's a nice spectrum there. I see. And I have been a rabbi for 12 years and serving B'nai Kesha the whole time. At what point did you know you wanted to become a, a rabbi? And uh, were you always passionate about going in this direction? Or was it something that grew on you? Or how did that come about? I was always passionate about Judaism. I always felt at home in the synagogue and safe in synagogues in a way that I didn't necessarily feel in other places in my life. Um, but I had sort of two moments. When I was 12, I have a very distinct memory of looking up at my rabbi on the bima and thinking, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> do that. Um, that didn't really go anywhere because I didn't know how one became a rabbi. And um, I went to I went to school. I studied astronomy as an undergrad, um, and I, I had an awakening my junior year. And I realized, or maybe the summer after my junior year, um, realized this was really not for me. I wasn't going to apply to grad school. Um, I wasn't going to become a scientist. That's not how that was going to work out. I still love science very much, <laughs> um, still keep up, um, but that's not where I was going in life. And I remembered that moment. Um, I went to my Hillel rabbi on campus and I said, how, how does somebody become a rabbi? Like, how does that work? 
And um, he was so lovely about it. Um, we started studying together every week. We had an hour long study session every Friday afternoon through my senior year. Um, and, uh, and that was that. <laughs> then I started, I started thinking about how to apply to rabbinical school. I'm curious about something. Um, as you were talking, something that stood out to me. Um, and I think for the purposes of this con uh, conversation and given um, our background um, and our relationship to Judaism, I think having grown up in evangelical Christianity, both Gail, myself, and many of our audience members probably have a whole lot of misconceptions or misunderstandings about Judaism. And those misconceptions are often founded in this uh, a little bit of an arrogant, at least in in the environments that I grew up in, this sort of arrogant, like we know better, and the stuff that we know is the truth, and mm -hmm. unfortunately that then finds its way into how we interact with the faiths that are different from ours, and because a sort of traditional bastardization of your texts are found within our texts, we tend to become very arrogant about how we approach Judaism. <clears throat> but there was something, a question that popped up in my mind, uh, as you were describing, particularly Reconstructionist Judaism, but Judaism in general, that there's, um, a, I guess, a, a branch, or correct me, um, my language, forgive my language here, um, or vocabulary, but uh, you were mentioning conservative Judaism is in includes Reconstructionist Judaism and other forms and sects as well. Could you help kind of clarify some of that language because in contrast yeah. to Christianity, there isn't um, this distinction between conservative Christianity and let's say liberal Christianity. There is a hard break, whereas in Judaism, that's not the case. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to correct a couple of things. So first reconstructionism is not part of conservative Judaism. Conservative mm. Judaism is a movement in, in and of itself. The reconstructionist movement which is now called Reconstructing Judaism, is a movement in and of itself that mm. had its birth in the conservative movement among leaders of the conservative movement, but it didn't live there for very long. I see. Um, and now it is its own movement. Um, broadly speaking, people often talk about four, sometimes five movements of Judaism, orthodoxy, conservative, reconstructionist, reform, renewal, that order doesn't mean anything. That's not the chronological order in which they developed or anything. Okay. It's just a list. Um, and when we talk about liberal Judaism, we are usually meaning everything that's not orthodoxy. I see. And conservative Judaism, with a big C, um, is the name of the movement because when the movement developed, they were trying to conserve historical practices. They were trying to conserve tradition. Mm. Not because they were anti-modern or anti-liberal. On the contrary, um, it was, in fact, a very liberal movement in many, many ways um, and continues to be. Um, but it is a more conserving of traditional practice movement than the rest of liberal Judaism tends to be. Um, that was their their guiding force. And, um, and the conservative movement developed in many ways as a response to both the reform movement, which is much less conserving of tradition mm. on purpose, right? They were attempting to reform and it's not reformed Judaism, mm. ED, it's reform, no ED. Um, there is no reformed Judaism. Um, reform Judaism was very much making a break with some traditional practices in its inception on purpose. Um, they were making 
various both theological and sociological statements in their development. Um, and uh, so the conservative was like, we're not doing that. <laughs> That's not our goal. But also we are not trying to um, recreate orthodox practice, which doesn't quite serve us in this moment um, in a variety of ways. And we're also trying to figure out um, the conservative movement was really an American movement. Um, we're trying to figure out how to serve Jews in the United States. Um, mostly the waves and waves and waves, literally millions of Jews who were coming in from Eastern Europe um, at the turn of the 20th century, um, who were traditional Jews. They had traditional practice for the most part, um, but wouldn't necessarily identify as Orthodox. So it was serving a particular, a particular place and time um, and not reform and not Orthodox. And so it became conservative. It is sl a slightly confusing term <laughs> <laughs> for that reason, but the conservative movement is in fact part of liberal Judaism. Um, so helpful for you to like break that down. Like it, I would have had the same misconception. So I appreciate yes, you unpacking yes, so that. Right. And, um, and I also would, would go a little bit further and say that while there are very much conservative small C, um, elements in Judaism, there are more right-leaning and more left-leaning elements in Judaism, uh, there's less of a hard break because Jews really understand other Jews to be part of our family. Mm. And most Jewish families contain people who are in all of these places and who are trying to accommodate each other. Um, and there's a lot of cross-pollination, right? So we are, you know, for sure, we are being moved by our own ideologies, which lead us to have some different practices. Um, but we very much understand ourselves, most Jews very much understand ourselves to be one people um, and to have to sort of figure out <laughs> how to talk hmm. to each other. Um, and as a Jewish professional, I'm constantly in contact in relationship with other Jewish professionals across movements, um, trying to figure things out together, trying to learn together. Um, and for the most part, those relationships are very civil and respectful and um, and positive. I find that so fascinating because um, within our large family of Christendom, Christianity at large, we often hear language like, oh, they're not a real Christian or mm -hmm. that group is doing something. Their beliefs don't line up with X, Y, and Z. Therefore, they must not be true Christians. They have a woman pastor. That's not a true Christian group. So there's always these delineations that tend to pop up in Christian um, organizations and churches and denominations. They, they tend to draw these lines as far as, you know, who's a real Christian and who's not a real Christian. And what I often found is even coming out of evangelicalism where you know, having grown up in fundamentalist and evangelical places where we drew these lines and said, oh, they don't believe in the uh, bodily resurrection of Christ, therefore they're not true Christians. Mm. And coming out of that space and now entering a space where I'm a part of a church where we would kind of hold the idea of physical resurrection, mm, maybe, maybe not, but that's not important to the task that we're doing. Um, as as a church, and I know that um, Rabbi Arian, you're very familiar with our church. Um, as I you and very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and and but it's it's fascinating though because in some of the circles of people who are post evangelical but maintaining some relationship to Christianity, 
we find ourselves doing similar things. Like we'll say, oh, those people are not very loving, they're not very welcoming, and that's not the message that Jesus would have taught, and therefore they're not real Christian. And we we do the same sort of gatekeeping and we fall into the no true Scotsman fallacy so often. So I find that really fascinating that amongst Jews, there is this mentality of, despite all our differences and approaches to how we interact with the world around us, how we interact with society, how we interact with non-Jews, we still recognize each other as part of this, you know, one family. So yeah, that's very fascinating to me. Yeah, I, I would say it's it's a difference of perspective. So, you know, what you're describing is um, these folks have a different ideological stance than I do, so they're not Christians, right? Whereas we might say these folks have an, a different ideological stance than we do. They are Jews, so we have to go argue with them, <laughs> so, right? They're part of us, and it matters. It matters mm. what they do. It affects us. And I wouldn't say it doesn't exist in Judaism that people say those people aren't Jewish. I mean, you'll mostly see it from Orthodox groups noticing um, liberal liberal Jews, you know, observing or not observing particular mitzvot, particular commandments, and understanding that to be um, problematic. Um, there's also one very big argument that um, that lives inside Judaism, um, having to do with the way Judaism is passed down from parents to children. So um, for many, many hundreds of years, uh, the understanding was if your mother was Jewish, if your birth mother was Jewish, then you were Jewish. Um, and if your birth father wasn't Jewish or was Jewish, it didn't matter, really, the mother is who mattered. And uh, over the last couple of decades, or now it's probably four decades, um, maybe five, I mean, it's been a long time now, I like <laughs> lose track of time. <laughs> um, the reform movement and reconstructing Judaism both accept what we call patrilineal descent, which means if your father was Jewish, but not your mother, and you were raised as a Jew, that's an important second step, mm -hmm. and you were raised as a Jew, um, then you are Jewish. And uh, in my movement, we say if you have either parent is Jewish, and you were raised as a Jew, then you're Jewish. So we might not assume that someone with a Jewish mother is Jewish, right? Because mm -hmm. if they have a Jewish mother and a Catholic father and they were raised as a Catholic, they're not Jewish. We, we affirm that they're Catholic, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas Orthodoxy would say they're Jewish because their mother's Jewish, right? So there is a division around those issues um, and personal identity status, which are very, very important and very fractious. Um, so that's like a big, a big thing where we do have this, <laughs> you know, um, this fragmenting of community and we have to like kind of work on that. Um, but I would say in general, when we have ideological differences like the ones you describe, Jews don't really understand who's another Jew by what opinions they hold, what by what beliefs they hold, right? That's not usually how we divide ourselves. Um, you'll see a lot of commonality in terms of belief across movements. Um, but you'll see difference in practice and we'll notice each other's practice and how that's different. And that's where we might have we might have arguments. Um, yeah. Mm. The, your comment about um, how when you when you uh, have other Jews who differ from you, the response is, so now we got to argue about it. Um, I loved, yeah. I loved, that made me smile because so coming out of evangelicalism, I mean, I wanted to start learning about Judaism through, through Jewish people rather than <laughs> what I had heard through Christianity, which and evangelical Christianity, even more so limiting 
um, on the perspective. So I joined a Facebook group and it was called like Ask Ask a Jew Anything or something like that. I'm not remembering the exact title. But in the rules, when you sign up, it says straight up, like right away, like one of the things it says is the first thing you need to know is that Jews don't agree on anything pretty much. And it was like, you need to understand going in that part of Judaism is this dialogue, this continuous disagreeing and arguing and debating stuff like you know nate was describing the whole okay do we have the same ideological differences in christianity no you're not a real christian is the attitude whereas to me that was just such a different frame it was like if you're going to ask a jew something be prepared that a lot of jews are going to have different opinions and they're all they're all jews so that to me was something unique different beautiful that i was looking at and um i had heard another rabbi say like the one thing all jews agree on is pretty much the messianic Judaism is not is not Jewish. That's correct. We agree and on that. And I was like, that's the one thing that they were all going to agree on. And that is fascinating, I guess. And maybe we can touch on this a bit that's later. The one. Yeah. That well, was the one thing that it said they all agreed on. And for me, that was the only perspective that I really got to hear Jewish input on was from people who are not considered Jewish by Jewish people, <laughs> which is so sad when I think about it, that that was the movement where I was like, now you're going to get a Jewish opinion. Here we go. Messianic Jew, here's a microphone. And to know that the Jewish community, that's probably one of the only areas where they're like, actually, this is where we all have this, the same right. view. Before um, we go into that, because yeah. I, I do want to land there and I want to spend a, a good chunk of time there. But I want to bring up other like common misconceptions about Judaism that often come from the Christian world, but maybe the larger non-Jewish world as well, and then really kind of take a deeper dive into this messianic Jewish thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but there are um, there are four common misconceptions, and I'm wondering if maybe like for each one, if you could just address a little bit about it so here's only four wow okay well so, <laughs> sorry i say four there are there are certainly dozens and probably hundreds more uh but these are like four that i found on this website and i'll if if i um if i think of it i'll i'll, I'll throw it a link in the show notes but the the first one and this is very much a, a Christian misunderstanding, is that um, we can understand Judaism by reading the Old Testament. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, so I want to say a couple things first about just the language. So um, Jews don't have an Old Testament. Yes. So um, the language of Old Testament, New Testament is entirely Christian. Mm -hmm. and, the, and what comprises the Old Testament is not identical to Jewish scriptures, which we call Tanakh which uh, is an acronym, it stands for Torah, the five books of Moses, Nevi'im, the books of the prophets, and Ketuvim, the writings, which is sort of like everything else, like Psalms and Proverbs and uh, Ezra and Chronicles, those things. Um, and the reason why that's really important is uh, we don't understand the Bible as having like an arc, a narrative arc getting us someplace else, right? Mm. So Old Testament works if your goal is to get to the New Testament, right? It's old. It's the one that is passe. <laughs> it is the covenant <laughs> that is no longer. Um, testament in the context of, of Bible, when we talk about Bible, means covenant, right? This agreement. Um, and so that one is old. The one with the Jews is old. That's over. And the ordering of the books of the Old Testament, the Christian Old Testament, lead us to Jesus, right? Like that's the narrative arc mm -hmm. um, of the Old Testament. On the other hand, Tanakh is like 
it's not random. It's it's basically chronological ordering of the books as they were written. Um, but it is a little bit random. It is very multivocal and it's hard to read it as anything but that. Um, it has no arc. It is sort of all over the place uh, in terms of genre and theme. Um, and it's not trying to do anything else, right? It is telling a very long story in many, many parts across space and time about the relationship of a people of a nation with their God and with their history. Some of that history is mythic history, right? Not mm -hmm. factual history, but right. mythic history, right? Um, so they're talking about, they're, this is our narrative, our national mythos. That's what Tanakh is, right? And it is our, our sacred core, right? So everything that comes from Judaism in the end, we often are trying to point back to Tanakh and we also start there. We have, we read Torah every single week in synagogue. Um, we use a lot of these texts in liturgy, right? We're, we're pointing back to Tanakh a lot as sort of like a sacred core that joins all Jewish people. But most Jewish practice will not be found anywhere in those books, hmm. right? So a lot of Jewish stories will be found there, right? Very essential stories. I mean, we tell the story of the Exodus constantly, multiple times a day, multiple times a year in particular holidays, right? Like those stories are really, really central. Um, but the practices... Uh, are not, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So Jews like to say that there are 613 mitzvot, that means commandments, in Torah. Um, more than half of them cannot be done today because they have to do with the sacrificial system in the ancient temple um, or other kinds of practices having to do with the land of Israel that are no longer, um, no longer happening. Um, and so that doesn't leave a lot of things, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And then the way that we practice actually is is an evolved system of, of rituals and practices and daily life um, that have evolved over the last 2000 years. Um, and the core of those practices, if you want to learn more about those practices, you should not look at Tanakh. You should look at Mishnah and Talmud, which are, are among our earliest rabbinic documents um, that, that are basically just conversations among the rabbis about what Jewish practice is supposed to look like and what their own personal Jewish practice looked like. Um, so it includes a lot of like sort of the rules of daily living, um, but also a lot of these conversations that go around it, you know, conversations about values, stories about values, um, arguments, right? Even the value of arguing <laughs> is found there and really enshrined in those texts. Um, and that's the place where you find the root of rabbinic Judaism, which is the Judaism that is practiced by 99% or more of Jews today. Um, there are some other smaller uh groups of Jews, um, Karaite Jews, for example, who don't follow Talmud um, and who have some slightly different practices. But for the most part, if you meet a Jew, they are practicing rabbinic Judaism, which has its root in that second temple period. And then in those rabbinic documents, the Mishnah and the Talmud, um, even though we are rooted in Tanakh. But if you read Torah, you will know very, very little about how Jews practice Judaism. Hmm. Um, not because this is not part of our history, but it describes our ancient Israelite past. Um, and we are not nomadic herders <laughs> you know, wandering through the wilderness, uh, worshiping in the tabernacle, right? That doesn't mm. exist. Um, right. And <laughs> we have changed like everybody else. So, um, you know, I, I would be 
alarmed if we hadn't changed. And in fact, the reason why we're still around is because things look different now, right? We have are, we are adaptable. It's another thing that I find really meaningful coming out of my own tradition because in evangelical tradition, Christian tradition, which is prominent in the U.S., especially in terms of Christianity, but like this idea of like, there's almost an unawareness of its history and its roots. Mm. It's sort of like we're trying to go back to the be the original Christians, but there's not a recognition of the diversity over time and the evolution and the change and the reality that it's not easy to go back even to early Christianity and to put yourself there because there's so much context you don't know. But I feel like I didn't, part of my movement was like almost a, a pushback against the concept of evolution um, on the mm -hmm. scientific front, but then even personal change and growth. It was so much more about we have the truth and less about let's look at how we as a group have continuously changed our opinion and mind on different things and how we've grown and evolved. And that that adaptability is important. So that value is something that I feel like has been missing from my own experience. Um, I hey, well, don't know. I mean, thank, thank God for religious evolution. I mean, none of our mm -hmm. none of our communities would exist, right. right? Right. Oh yeah. And it's what's ironic is evangelical Christians on the Christian tree are the newcomers, but they have very little understanding of that concept of like you wouldn't be around if that change change thing wasn't you know an important mm. factor in all of it, right? Yeah. Like because you're like such a new branch of all of it. Well, this right? is this so. is common among fundamentalist thinking yeah um not saying that all evangelicals would consider themselves fundamentalists but like this kind of thinking of there are fundamentals to which we need to go back to and like kind of rebuild mm. and then then we'll be doing the right thing if we just get the fundamentals right and we we really dig deep um into those and um and this this like fallacy of the the past was better like we knew how to do it if we can just reimagine what that was like and we'll just do it like that it'll be great um and there's a reason we're not in the past anymore and you know it's an incredible thing that human beings are so good at taking our stories and bringing them forward into the future and figuring out new applications for them and learning how to do this uh religion thing in a new way um it's really beautiful like I, that's, I find that actually miraculous. And, um, you know, that in itself is like, that's the Testament, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. right? Um, that, that is why we get to be religious people. Like how amazing is God that we get to do that, you know, mm. <laughs> like that we are able, um, to do that. So, um, it's really, it's a shame to, um, to forget all mm. of that history. Yeah. Yeah. So, the next misunderstanding or misconception is that all Jews believe in God and all Jews are religious. Okay, interesting. So, two really two separate things. Hmm. So, um, I recently read an article in the New York Times about um, how Americans are becoming de-churched, and it was a very funny article for one particular reason. They highlighted that Jews and Buddhists are the most de-churched um, American religious groups, which was hilarious to me because <laughs> I was unaware that either of us were churched. <laughs> and also, I know that many, many Buddhists live far from a place with a teacher and may mm -hmm. not belong to groups that have regular weekly meetings in the first place. That is not necessarily a part of Buddhist practice. Right. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> It has been true for a very, very long time that most American Jews do not attend synagogue on a regular basis. Um, 
And that doesn't mean that they don't think of themselves as as religious. Mm. And it doesn't mean that I wouldn't call them religious. Um, Because that is one aspect of being engaged in Jewish life and Jewish peoplehood. And um, it's one of many, right? So the folks in our community who don't attend services every week or even, you know, once a month, who are the heads of our tikkun olam, our repairing the world committees, or who are, you know, working on membership and in reach and making sure people get fed um, when they when their family member goes into the hospital or when they have a new baby, right? Those people are religious, right? <laughs> Those mm. people are building religious community and they are engaging in the work, right? Um, so I would not call those folks non-religious. That being said, roughly half of American Jews don't belong to synagogues. And historically, what Jews belong to was not necessarily synagogues. I mean, lots of folks belong to synagogues, but they belong to many, many other Jewish community organizations, um, many of which were set up as welfare organizations for new immigrants, for new Jewish immigrants. And that was where they had a lot of their Jewish engagement. Many of those organizations either no longer exist or exist in much, much smaller ways. Um, and so there's sort of a hole in that way among you know the life of American Jews, fewer places to engage that aren't explicitly synagogues, um, which is hard for people who don't who don't want to engage in the worship piece as much, mm. right? Um, figuring out where to belong in Jewish community without those places. Um, so that's that's like a struggle, I think, for a lot of American Jews is figuring out where to be if not in a synagogue, but still in Jewish community. Um, I would also say there are a lot of Jewish atheists and agnostics. Um, that is very, very, very common mm. um, in all movements. And um, and it's like not a problem. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, for, for my own part, um, I have a very deep faith and um, which even that language I've definitely borrowed from Christian mm. uh, colleagues. It's like never how I would have talked about my own Judaism <laughs> before right. I was in deep relationship with Christians. But um I have a little envy about their ability to talk in that way. Mm. Um, so I have a very deep faith and I really want to support other Jews who want to engage in wrestling with God um, and their own God beliefs um, on their own terms. And I do that with lots of members and I do have lots of community members in our own congregation who are, feel very, very faithful in that way. Um, and so there is diversity, right? There is diversity among God belief, but there's no litmus test, right? So when you join a synagogue, nobody asks you if you believe in God. Um, if you join an Orthodox synagogue, they they probably will want to know on some level, do you keep kosher at home? Do you keep Shabbat in the way that our community expects you to, right? There, there are certain norms of community um, and of community practice, less so in liberal movements, but still, you know, not it's not completely normless. Um, but nobody's going to ask you in any of those movements if you believe in God. Mm. It's just not going to be a question. Um, nobody has to make any faith statements. And um, there is no dogma, really, around what faith statements are acceptable and not acceptable. I love that. And it yeah, also... Same, yeah, same. Resonating so much. It makes me feel um, so grateful for the congregation that I'm a part of, especially given how I identify with term in, in relationship to beliefs and dogma. So, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you're probably aware that um, that I'm pretty agnostic on 
some days I'm pretty agnostically atheist, and on other days I'm pretty agnostically theist, but I still identify very strongly as Christian, and the congregation that I'm a part of, it's a Christian church that has never once asked me what I believe about God. It's totally a new thing. Nate and I are on our own journey. We're in a similar spot. I think I would I would agree with you in, in terms of how I feel. I probably lean more atheistic, some probably overall than theistic, but it's a, it's been a weird journey. I think I grew up my whole life being very believing in the mm. deity and like that relationship which was drilled into my head. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. These are evangelical. Yeah. This is evangelical lingo. Yeah. But um, <laughs> it, it shifted. It shifted in me um, as a lot of things sort of fell apart. And as I started noticing more and more issues with the whole thing, and I didn't, I never imagined I would land back in a church, let alone be in a church where they weren't trying to litmus test if I believed in God and um, where being agnostic was comfortable in a church. I, I would have assumed that would have been impossible in a, in a Christian church. So, um, hearing that that's no, that's normative, that's you know that's not a problem in Judaism. That you know that as a whole, it's sort of acceptable to you know like there's not a push for you have to believe is, it's lovely. Like I feel like I found some small segment of Christianity that does that, but um, it makes me excited to know that in Judaism that's more common of a thing. Hi, my name is Elizabeth from Woodbridge, New Jersey, and I listen to Full Mutuality while cooking dinner. Are you an alumnus of an evangelical college or university? Or have you ever wondered what attending or working at one of those schools is like? The Chapel Probation Podcast brings you the stories from students, faculty, and administration who experienced all the racism, the queer phobia, the misogyny, and purity culture weirdness that are kind of the hallmarks of these schools. I'm Scott Okamoto author of Asian American Apostate, Losing Religion and Finding Myself at an Evangelical University, which tells my story of teaching English at an evangelical school and realizing I didn't believe in God or the Bible anymore. I created Chapel Probation as a compliment to my book, but this podcast has become its own community of people who have stories of hurt and pain and stories of triumph during and after their time at evangelical schools. Some of the guests you've probably heard of, but most of them you probably haven't. But all the stories are incredible examples of surviving Christian schools and finding ourselves. You can find Chapel Probation wherever you listen to podcasts, and I hope you'll join us. You'll often, you'll often hear people talking about um, two different sort of rubrics about how you talk about both behavior in Judaism and belief in Judaism. So some folks will say, um, you know, the first thing that happens is belonging, a sense of belonging, and then mm -hmm. behaving as a Jew, and then believing, right? That's That might be the end, right? But the expectation is that you should have a sense of belonging first, and you should have behavior, right? Jewish yes. behavior, which looks various ways depending on your community. Um, and that's going to lead to belief. Um, and that rubric is, um, is often based on a midrash, which is a sort of expanded story around um, sacred text, um, midrash about receiving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. So um, in Torah, it says that the Jews were standing or the Israelites were standing at, at the base of Mount Sinai, right? And um, and it was said, you know, uh, will, will, you, will you accept these commandments? And they said, we will do and we will hear or we will mm -hmm. obey, right? And so the sense is like, 
we're going to do the thing. And that's what's going to lead us into behavior or into belief. Um, and there's there's a midrash about this about this text um, that is basically like the Jews accepted it because they were standing at the bottom of the mountain. And what that means is really that God lifted up the mountain and they were underneath it about to get crushed, <laughs> which I find hilarious, like a very funny <laughs> rabbi joke. This is like an ancient midrash, right? Wow. Like 2000 years ago, the rabbis are like joking would we have accepted this if we were not standing under the mountain? <laughs> oh. but we did We did stand under the mountain. We belong, right? We were part of this group standing under the mountain. We belonged. And then we said, we will behave. We will do, right? And that's what's going to lead us into belief. And, um, and that is how Jewish communities are structured, right? Mm. There's a sense of, are you part of the community, right? Are you one of these folks who's going to cook a meal for someone, who's going to show up to a shiva house, Who's going to receive care from the community, right? Are you going to do those things? Be part of the community? Will you feel a part? Will you behave? Whether that means, you know, following mitzvot in a particular traditional way or a non-traditional way, whether that means doing social justice, whether that means um, doing other kinds of care for the wider community. And then belief is something that really flows out of our behavior, right? It's It doesn't go the other way, Um for many of us. Hmm. And that really, that resonates for me because I grew up um, as an agnostic um, or atheist. I came home, the story my mother tells said I came home from kindergarten. I went to a Jewish day school, um, San Diego Jewish Academy. And I said, you will not believe, you will not believe what they told me. And there's like this character named God and it's ridiculous. I <laughs> 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 had this whole thing. And I was really firm in my in my doubt um, until 16 or 17 years old. Uh, and that never kept me from being really committed to synagogue. That actually mm. never kept me from being able to pray um, because I understood prayer as being uh, something that lifted up the whole community that was about belonging mm. and behaving, that it wasn't about my personal belief, but it was about sitting there in community and being able to sing the same words as my ancestors and, um, you know, to be able to do that with all of these generations of folks sitting in the same room, loving each other. Like that was very, very powerful for me before I believed. Mm. You're getting um, me choked up because yeah. like some of the things you're, you're putting words on, I've never heard anyone put into words, but they're the things that I appreciate about my current community. And mm -hmm. I still participate in prayer. Whereas I used to have a belief where I, spoke to a divine being that I believed in. Now I still sit in prayer and there's still something so precious to me about it. And it's hard to explain what that's like without saying, oh, I'm talking to a divine being. So that sounds like the, the ultimate, at least from, from where I had come from. But to hear you express the beauty of prayer in a different way of what that meant to you when you were a kid and when you didn't have that. And it just touches me. You've really put language to things that I, my heart was feeling, but like, yeah, I couldn't. Thank you. Mm. Thank yeah. you. So the third one um, that I want to touch on, and maybe just briefly because the fourth one is the one that'll lead us into the <laughs> further conversation. But the the third one is, um, and again, the, like this, this all to me sounds like you know monolithic statements, and it's it's similar to like I, I bristle against it because it's similar to when you hear you know monolithic statements about Asians, all Asians 
like spicy food or all Asians drive poorly, you know, those kinds of things. So this is when I read these misconceptions, I feel a little bit of that same sort of bristling. But here's another monolithic kind of statement. All Jews support the state of Israel. I need to do this briefly. Come on. Come on. So I want to say worms. (laughs) I want to say a couple things. So first, support. What does support mean? Mm. Um, I would say the vast majority of Jews would consider themselves in some way or another connected to Israel, the state of Israel. And, um, and that many of us are connected to the state of Israel, both because half of the Jews in the world live there, which means our family members live there, our dear friends live there. Um, and partly because Israel provides a incredibly important um, safety net <laughs> for world Jewry. And it is very difficult to forget that fact. Mm. Um, even though many of us, you know, there was a time in my life when I, I felt like if I need to leave the United States, I will go make Aliyah. I'll move to Israel. And at this point in my life, I don't think that I would do that. There are other places I might go first, um, but it still provides that that place of refuge um, that it was originally intended to provide. Um, and so most Jews support Israel in those ways, mm. in very real ways. I would also say that most American Jews in particular have deep divisions over the behavior of the government of the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um and um, and have a lot of like are having a lot of crisis around that and um, where we might not have been having that level of crisis 30 years ago um, mm. as we are now. Right. Um, and I would I would say that is is true in a variety of ways for a lot of people, even people who are still feeling very strongly like, you know, Israel is so important to us as a Jewish people that you know we can't possibly understand what they're dealing with and the decisions they have to make and so we have to like be supportive uh you know publicly and privately <laughs> because this is so crucial right um and a lot of Jews who who don't feel that way mm. um who feel like a lot of angst <laughs> around mm. that um and i'd also say i just want to like go a little bit further about that which is that um the way that Christianity supports Israel often looks very different from the way the Jews support mm-hmm. Israel. Um, so for Christians, there's theological issues involved. Um, for most Jews, theology is not really an, an issue mm-hmm. in our support for Israel. We don't support Israel because we think God gave us Israel, right? Like that's mm-hmm. not that's not the issue or because we're trying to lay the ground for the Messiah to come. Um, in fact, in the early waves of um immigration from Eastern Europe to um, to then Palestine, um, there was a lot of pushback among Orthodox Jews because they said, you know, we can't build a state of Israel. You can't have that. You can't have it until we have a kingdom of Israel heralded in by the Messiah, right? And it would be, you know, like spitting at God to do this. It would be heresy <laughs> to hmm. do this, right? There are actually lots of Orthodox Jews who live in Israel now who still feel that way, oh, right? Wow. Who are very opposed to the state of Israel, on theological grounds, even though they want to live in the land of Israel for theological reasons, for religious reasons. Um, So it's very complex. Um, 
And I would say that, like, uh, you know, support for the project of building the state of Israel actually came very slowly in the American context because American Jews, as opposed to European Jews at the same time, were pretty comfortable. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this wasn't our issue. We didn't want to find some place to run away to. And we were not being murdered in the street. So, um, you know, there's very different pushes and pulls there. But uh, support is very complicated. Mm, <laughs> it's very, yeah. very complicated. And I love Israel. I love the state of Israel. I am very um, distressed by the state of Israel. I am very distressed for the plight of Palestinians. Um both, you know, for historic reasons and today. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and also next week I'm traveling there and I'm going to be living in Jerusalem for three weeks and studying in Jerusalem. And that's very complicated. I haven't been there in a long time. I know the landscape is going to be very different. Um, and I have complicated feelings mm-hmm. <laughs> about doing that at this moment in time. Um, and at the same time, you know, I, I love and appreciate the state of Israel. And I'll say just like a little bit more. I mean, I could talk about this for the rest of the night, but <laughs> um, one thing that really struck me when I was first there, um, I traveled to Israel for the first time when I was 19, mm. was the sense of being a majority for the first time in my life mm. and how weird and amazing that felt. And it was, you know, <laughs> it was like, like, otherworldly um and i was really smitten by that Hmm. and i i think i'm over it now like i'm actually it's fine i can i can be a religious minority in the united states there are a lot of freedoms that living in the united states affords me in Mm -hmm. fact religiously um that living in israel would not afford me um but it was a shocking kind of thing Hmm. (laughs) and um you know, and I think a lot of folks resonate with that that feeling, that sense oh, of like, yeah. wow, there's like a place. And um, and for, I think for the state of Israel, it is a very complicated thing to figure out, like, what does it look like to be in power um, for, you know, the first time in two millennia? Hmm. Like, what does it look like to be powerful, to command one of the most powerful armies in the region? What does it look like to to wield this level of power over other people um, and over each other and how to do that, um, how to do that in a way that is appropriate to be in the league of nations, you know, like mm. what does that look like? Wow. Um, it is, it is a very complex thing to untangle. Um, and I would say the, the misconception all Jews support the state of Israel. It's not really a misconception the misconception is like, what does support mean? Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. And why? And what does it look like in practice? And, um, you know, and it's like, it's a lot more complicated. It's mm. just a lot more complicated um, than, um, than one would assume. Mm. Do, do, is there like dinner table debates around this in Jewish families for like discussing the politics in Israel or do these conversations, are they... So they yeah, these not conversations the are happening. <laughs> I think they aren't always easy conversations. Mm. Um, there's a lot of intergenerational trauma in the Jewish community and, mm. you know, a sense of um, sometimes critique does not feel as comfortable in some spaces as others. Um, but I think it's a place where people are really trying to grow. And, um, 
you know, and figure out like, how can we have these conversations and know that we still have this love, right? For both our people who are there, right? And for the miracle that the state exists in the history of Jewish of Jewish communities, right? Like that's a it's a miracle in Jewish in Jewish history. Um, like how can we not be um, you know, not feel like it's a problem to critique, right? In the same way that like I'm an American and I critique my government all day long, mm-hmm. all day long. <laughs> and it's really understandable among other Americans that you can be a proud American and still have critique for the government. Right. And for the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and even for like the fact of states and borders and nations in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. You can have critique for all of that and still be a proud American. And that's true of Israelis too. Right. Mm. That Israelis also have that same level or worse of critique for their own state. And that American Jews or other diaspora Jews who are not Israeli citizens, right? I don't have a vote over there, <laughs> right? Um, have a, a level of critique as well, but also this from a distance, right? And also this historic love and commitment. Um, and that this is a, a much more complicated issue um, for Jews to talk about than, um, than it might be for Christians. Hey, everyone. I'm Jessica from the Leaving the Village podcast. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into this show. We're so grateful that you've decided to spend your time with us. Seriously, Dan, Gail, Kathleen, Nate, Scott, and the rest of us here at the Dauntless Media Collective couldn't produce content like the show you're listening to without your support. I'd also like to invite you even further into the conversation. Right now, there are some great discussions happening over in the Dauntless Media Collective Discord server. If you're interested in chatting with other folks who are deconstructing and decolonizing the oppressive traditions they came from, please feel free to hop onto the server. If you don't know what Discord is, it's a place where communities can gather online for chatting on a wide variety of topics. In our Discord server, we have channels devoted to general deconstruction conversations, some meme sharing, therapeutic venting about whatever religious bullshit you're currently dealing with, and even a channel specifically devoted to talking about the latest episode of the podcast you're listening to right now. I hope you'll join us. You can log in directly to the Dauntless server by clicking on the link in the show notes or heading to dauntless.fm and clicking on the link in the top banner. See you there. I do want to quickly touch on something that resonated with me as you were talking about that sense of, you know, walking into a, a space and in, like in a nation state and you're the majority. There is something I, I like even from my own experience of whenever I go to visit Japan and I didn't notice it so much when I was a little kid, but I think the first time I really sort of recognized it was in 2017, which was one of the more recent times that I went back walking around and not feeling like there was an expectation on me about something, right? There was a stereotype mm-hmm. that was going to be leveled towards me. And I mean, there was a whole lot of other baggage about walking around in a country where I didn't speak the language, <laughs> but to feel that sense of, oh, okay, I can I can feel comfortable in my own skin and, and f- feel safe from those microaggressions. Uh, that was... Something. So your description of that really, I mean, it sent chills down, down my, the good kinds of chills. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That was, that was powerful. Mm. 
Okay, so the last misunderstanding that'll kind of move us into the other part of this conversation. Going to a Seder represents Jesus's Last Supper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so remember that thing I said about rabbinic Judaism? Mm-hmm. The Seder is an invention of rabbinic Judaism. Mm -hmm. And it's probably an invention of rabbinic Judaism that comes after the split of early Christianity off of Jewish community, right? So if there was... Uh, some community between the early Jewish Christians, first century Jewish Christians, um, and the rest of the Jewish community, the Seder comes after that split. Um, so Jesus didn't celebrate a Seder. Um, but as a first century Jew, Jesus likely went and made sacrifices in the temple, um, as similar to how it's described in the Torah, um, and as the rest of Jewish community would do as well. And ate it with, you know, ate that lamb with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. These are all biblical elements mm. of the Passover sacrifice and had a meal, right? Because that's what you do when you go and sacrifice something is you you have a feast um, and drink wine because that's what Jews drink. Um, <laughs> you know, so like, <laughs> yes, for sure. You know, if Jesus had a meal during Passover in his life, it looked like that mm. um, and probably had many of them every year of his life. And, um, but the Seder is something in particular, right, that comes after the death of Jesus and after that split, um, after the destruction of the Second Temple. Mm -hmm. And the Seder is a long retelling of the Exodus from Egypt. It is a, um, it's sort of the height of rabbinic culture, because the goal of the evening is to expand and expand and expand upon the story for as many hours as you possibly can. And to do that technique that I mentioned before, Midrash, where you're mm -hmm. expanding on the story, you're like, you know, stretching the story out um, and adding elements to it from actually from your imagination and from tradition. Um, and that's what the Seder is. So it has many, many elements. Those elements, many of them are probably borrowed from the tradition of Greek symposia, um, from this tradition of having an elaborate formal meal, um, which doesn't appear anywhere else in Jewish tradition um, of that time. There are later sort of like other satyrs that get invented. Um, but at that time, that seems to be built on this like Greek formal meal, um, including there's a tradition to lean on a, a pillow and like recline. That's probably borrowed from Greek tradition. Mm. Um, so that is later. <laughs> that comes later. And there's no messianic element in Jewish satyrs of any sort. Mm. Um, and um, and I should just like add as a as an aside um, in Jewish um in Jewish thought, if you're thinking about a Messiah, which most Jews aren't thinking about a Messiah ever, but if you're thinking about a Messiah, that is a human being, not a God, mm -hmm. um, because it's considered incredibly uh, heretical to say that God would come in a human form that's like beyond the pale. Mm. Um, that's not how God works. God is not embodied. Um, and, um, you know, so there's no there's no messianism. In the mm -hmm. Seder, it doesn't point toward anything, right? Um, and the history that it remembers is our mythic history of the Exodus from Egypt. Um, and many people will today, like, you know, just like everything else, the Seder evolves, right? So today, the Seder is often used as an opportunity to talk about other Exodus moments in history, right? To talk about Exodus movements, mm -hmm. um, to talk about social justice issues, to talk about modern day slavery and how it exists around the world still, right? 
um, and how we should be engaged in fighting that. Um, so the Seder does evolve um, in many places, but it doesn't talk about Jesus. Um, and Jesus wasn't at one. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us to the conversation that I think we want to really have, uh, because it's sort of a point of contention for in, in the evangelical world and the post-evangelical world and our relationship with, with Judaism. And that is this idea of messianic Jews or the Jews for Jesus movement, as it were, and whether that's in any way, shape, or form related to Judaism. I think the question then, from your perspective, what is a Messianic Jew? What are the Jews for Jesus? Can I just quickly interject? I wanted to say, like, as an evangelical in the past, it was the only form of Judaism that was sort of presented to me as Judaism, and we idolized. Like, these were, like, um, and it's sad. Like, right now, it makes me feel bad to think of it, but mm -hmm. it was, like, these were like the only the remnant of real Jews that got it right. And so there was sort of like this reverence for people that were in that movement and uh, lifting up of their voices, um, prioritizing their opinions on things. But it kind of went in contrast to other Jews, which is the majority of the Jewish movement. <laughs> so um, but like that was the perspective that we were given. And like there was just this awe of it from evangelicals over anyone who said they were a messianic Jew and like this willingness to listen to them specifically mm. um, because, you know, they were, I think they were, maybe this, I'd love to hear your take on this, but I feel like they were just sort of confirming like, you know, we're, we came, we came out of the Jewish movement and we are, we are like the improvement on it and the culmination of what God <laughs> was trying to do. And so they kind of just drove that message home. Mm. I don't know if like, that's making any sense, uh, but I'd like to hear your take. I got a lot to say about this. <laughs> Jews, Jews hate it when Christianity is presented as like Judaism 2.0. <laughs> that is I so... Don't blame you. <laughs> such a problem for so many reasons, right? So, I mean, like in general, this sense that Christianity answers a problem in Judaism, provides a solution for a problem in Judaism, is so bizarre to Jews because that problem doesn't exist in mm -hmm. Judaism. Right. So the idea that like we can't possibly do enough to overcome our sinful nature and properly follow all of God's laws. And so we're just like irredeemable by our own merit is not an idea that exists in Judaism. Of course, we can't be perfect. That's fine. Like God made us and knows we're not perfect. That's not a problem. Mm. Not a problem. <laughs> right. We, we are not suffering under that. We're not worried about being saved or redeemed or anything else. That is not a thing we're trying to achieve in the first place, right? So this, like, this entire idea is so perplexing mm. um, to Jews because it just simply, it answers a problem that doesn't exist and um, or a question that doesn't exist, right? We weren't asking the question, why do you keep giving us an answer? Um, <laughs> so that's, that's like one thing that is just so odd, right? The other piece is um, that Messianic Judaism or Jews for Jesus, both of which are Christian movements and not Jewish in mm -hmm. any way, just to be clear, they're both Christian movements comprised of Christians entirely um, <laughs> and um, are not Jewish and are not part of Judaism. Um, and 
I feel free to speak for all of Judaism. (laughs) 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 I would not generally say, you know, what I said is true for all Jews, but I will say that that's true for all Jews. Um, They're not Jews. So, um, but they, they appeal to that same desire we were talking about before about like hearkening back to some mythological past, some perfected past where we like did it right, where we understood, where we got the message firsthand, where we, you know, whatever it was, and we knew how to do it, right? This bizarre, anti-historical way of of trying to live. Um, and they really like scratch that itch for people who are looking for that kind of thing, right? They're like, oh, if Jews just listened, it would look like this. So the way that both of those movements um organize themselves is they kind of like look at modern Jews, right? And of course, again, modern Jews are practicing rabbinic Judaism, right? They're practicing a Judaism that has evolved since the time of the temple, since the time of Tanakh, and since the time of Jesus, Mm -hmm. um, because 2,000 years have passed, right? So um, they look at Jews today and they say, I'll take this, I'll take this, I'll take this, I'll take this, right? (laughs) This kind of looks Jewish, and then I'll do Christianity, wearing those clothes, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, Jews who, you know, who believed in Jesus in one way or another in the first century, right, um, they evolved and they look like Christians today. They just look like Christians today. Uh They don't look like current Jews slapping some Jewish practices or some Jewish garb on Christianity, right? Like, that's just not what it would look like, right? It doesn't make any sense in that way. Um, The other piece um, that's really important to notice is that um, Messianic Jews and Jews for Jesus give Christianity kind of a cover. Um, I think most Christians actually get that they're not Jews, right? So this is, I mean, I don't know if most, but like, I think many movements don't get that they're not Jews. Yeah. I think most um, non-evangelical Christians will recognize that those those are not Jewish traditions in any way, shape, or form. I think in evangelical circles, they might have an easier time pulling the wool over people's eyes, yeah. Um, because it's it it answers that longing in the evangelical heart. It's one of those things that just addresses a big concern that evangelicals have, and so they sort of they they take that one in hook, line, and sinker. I think in evangelical, yeah, I agree with you, Nate. And I think an evangel an important note in evangelical culture is this whole rapture end times belief system with Jesus coming back and like. There's like a mythology that sort of evolved taking pieces of the New Testament and pretending like we had some way of looking at all. Like it's very new beliefs that like this idea of a rapture, this idea that Revelations was saying this, this or this, whereas that's not how it was written originally like, to the people that were reading it. Then there was a different, um, completely different way of looking at it. But so these new teachings have sort of. Uh, come about in such a way that certain things need to be set up a certain way in Israel. Like Israel's a part of the end mm-hmm. and what's going to happen. So therefore, there's that fascination with the Jewish people and like, but it, it's channeled through the Messianic Jewish group because they're able to reflect the belief systems. Um, so they are, I feel like Messianic Jews are pretty evangelical in terms of even maybe their Christian positions yeah. on stuff yeah. as well. Yes, I think yeah. I think that's I think that's true. Um, yeah, but it, it, it provides some cover, right? Because there's mm-hmm. like, oh, Jews agree with us, right? Um, and it's very funny to see um, President Trump with a 
Jewish rabbi. (laughs) (laughs) For those who can't see, Rabbi Arian is doing air quotes around. Blessing blessing him in Jesus' name, right? So this is like not a thing. That's not a thing. Jews don't do that. (laughs) Right? Not a thing. Um, And so both of those movements also, in large part, exist to missionize Jews, right? Mm -hmm. To um, evangelize to Jews. And they both have significant presence in the state of Israel, in fact, um, and produce doc, you know, all kinds of things in Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, in order to like appeal to Israeli Jews, um, which is a very interesting thing to attempt. Um, and they are very, very interested. If you meet them on the street, the Jews for Jews used to be out pre-COVID everywhere all the hmm. time. I don't know if they're back, but um, they were really interested in talking to Jews, right? Because their goal is to move Jews into Christianity. Um, and it is, um, it's a problem, right? It's really a problem. There are organizations like, uh, Jews for Judaism, right? Which exist specifically to speak, especially to young people, right? Cause mm-hmm. a lot of this happens on college campuses mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in those kinds of spaces where people don't have a lot of support, um, you know, to, to reach out to those people and say like, here's why this is not a thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> here's why this is not Judaism. And um, I can speak as a former Jewish college student. Um, evangelical groups on campus are very persuasive and very engaging um, mm-hmm. to non-Christians and to non-evangelical Christians trying to sort of like, you know, embrace them. Um, so for um, for a few years in college, I was engaged with a group called InterVarsity. Um, oh, I'm very campus. familiar. Mm-hmm. And, I am familiar with IVCF. Yeah. Yeah. So they were really interesting. Some some dear friends of mine were involved and they invited me to a meeting to teach something about Judaism. And I was like, oh, this is interfaith dialogue. I'm so down, you know? And oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. I did it. People were lovely. I did it. It was it was strange, but I did it. And then they prayed over me and that was weird. Um, and then I joined one of their small group Bible studies in my in my dorm. And, um, you know, it it was not a compelling thing. (laughs) It was not a compelling (laughs) argument for Christianity. (laughs) We read a lot of parables and I was like, this is, this is dumb. Like the way, not the text itself, but like the way that um, they were engaging with it was very childish. Um, Mm. And it was clear they were like reading a script, right? So it was like, oh, this is, this is not serious. You guys are a lot smarter. You're like engineering students. What is this? Um, but also they were so caring toward me, right? They were really, really working hard to recruit me, um, in a variety of ways, right? There was like this very serious love bombing going on all the time. Hmm. And, um, uh, and, you know, and they were friends, right? And I was really engaged with them in that way. And when I left college and I like a couple years out, I'm, I'm applying to rabbinical school, um, I had a friend who was part of this group and she sent me in the mail a tract, like a Christian tract oh, yeah. um, with her with her Christmas card that year. And I called her and I said, I'm so hurt by this. Like, why would you send this to me? Um, you know, I, I'm replying to rabbinical school. Like, you, <laughs> you know how connect how like committed I am to this yeah. thing that I'm doing. She said, I love, I love your Judaism. I love your Judaism. I just want you to complete it. I just want you Oof. to accept Ooh, Jesus. I just want you to, you know, I want, I'm worried about your soul, like that, this kind of stuff. Um, and we haven't talked since, 
um, of mm. course, but it was just, it, I found it rather, it was shocking. It was shocking to me. Mm. And cause I didn't mm. get it. I just didn't get what the goal was. Um, it was so foreign to me. Um, but this is, this is what Juice for Jesus is about. Like this is, <laughs> this is part yeah. of the same movement um, and the same desire to specifically evangelize to Jews. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's like hard, it's a little hard for me to wrap my mind around as a Jew, because this is not a thing that Jews do, right? Like, we're worried about everyone's soul, but in a a human way, right? (laughs) Not in a, we need you to be Jewish kind of way, right? In fact, don't be Jewish. It's hard. (laughs) You don't have to be. There's no... No Jewish movement trying to recruit other people into becoming Jewish. That's no, not a like thing. As soon as that happens, you know that's not Judaism, right? Mm. As soon, like that's a big clue. That's not Judaism because we don't need you to do that. We think you can be great exactly as you are, um, and um, you know it's it's unnecessary. If you want to join us, I mean, like, great, we'll have you. Yeah, <laughs> there's a process. We'll have you, but. But we don't need you to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And we can love you as you are and actually love you, right? Mm-hmm. As you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah, so this is all it's all part of the same shtick. And um, just, you know, a warning to people trying to buy Jewish garb on Amazon. Don't do that. If you want to buy <laughs> Jewish things like a talit, buy it from a proper Judaica store. Um because a lot of that stuff is messianic stuff. Mm. Um, and uh, you should just watch out. Buyer beware. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's a true reflection of, well, my experience within evangelicalism as well. Like I said, it's an evangelical movement, messianic Judaism. And uh, they, the love bombing thing that you mentioned is not just to Jewish people, it is to anyone to like that's vulnerable um to get you in. And mm-hmm. it's very different. Like it is a save your soul mentality and a, you know, you're gonna go to hell if you don't receive this message. So you have to believe what we believe and it's the most dire thing out there. Yeah. And so like everything else sort of just falls that that becomes just the driving force and um all the other stuff just gets justified in the name of trying to meet that that one thing. Um, so when you were describing that that whole situation on what it's like to be love bombed, uh, I remember being a part of love bombing and not having words for what I was doing, having that agenda when meeting with people. I was on that side of things where I was trained to do that. I was indoctrinated mm-hmm. from childhood to to meet people and to try and recruit um, mm-hmm. as a part of, you know, and in my mind, recruit, save them from hell was the most, I mean, I could, could I be more loving? You know what I mean? <laughs> like if there's some eternal battle and I'm snatching their souls from hellfire. I mean, um, this, this, it's fascinating to me to have these conversations, even in terms of like, when you talked about, um, the Seder and you talked about, um, the, the mythical history of Judaism, like we were taught as evangelicals that it was historical and it, 
it isn't until recently that I ever learned that Jews do not. And it makes so much more sense now because I was like going through it in my mind and I like we were told it was history and it's sort of like Noah's Ark. It's just things that are not adding up at all. <laughs> and like the evangelicals are like, these are historical facts. And like it took me a long time in listening to some Jewish uh, teachings to go, no, Jews, a lot of Jews, most Jews, I'm not sure on this one. It would be a question to you. But I had her first heard that idea that it was a mythological history, the Exodus story from Jewish people. And that was shocking to me because I had never known that yeah, in my I own think, learning. And for sure, there's diversity on that question. Um, but I would say that, uh, and I, you know, I'm speaking as like a grown up who's a professional Jew, who's well educated, who's, you know, done all the biblical criticism, whatever. Um, what I would say about the way that Jews understand Torah in general is that we kind of hold things lightly mm. and we hold them lightly so that they can be many things at once. Right. So it's totally possible for a Jew who really believes that the Exodus happened very literally as described, which there's plenty of Jews who believe that. Right. Um, they can hold that and they can also hold other things. They can hold, for example, all the Midrashim, all these extra stories, which are contradictory right? Mm. At the same time, and being able to hold all of that together is considered praiseworthy, right? Mm. That you can hold so much, you can have so much Torah at once, um, is a really cool thing. And so um, even though there are plenty of Jews who believe in the literal exodus, far fewer who believe in the literal creation, um, that is uh, very, very unpopular among, among Jewish world, although there are some, but it's, mm -hmm. it's not popular idea. And anyway, um, we don't have creationism in the same way as mm -hmm. we never have. Uh, <laughs> yeah. have, but, um, uh, you know, but you can, you can hold all of those things and sort of like where the line of, of mythic history versus factual history versus, you know, something else versus poetry, right? A lot of this stuff that we point to and it's like, that's fact. It's a poem. <laughs> right? It's poetry. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's a parable. It's a, you know, it's it's something else entirely. Mm -hmm. Um and um, you know, being able to hold that lightly allows for this multiplication of interpretation, which is how we survive with this text. It's how we keep drawing out meaning from the text. Mm. Um and uh, you know, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's okay. It's okay. Right. And I am, as a person who believes that the Exodus is mythic history versus like a thing that actually happened, I can be as deeply invested in the Seder, in the, the Passover story and, you know, all of that practice as someone who believes that it factually happened. Right. Cause it is, it is a deep religious theological truth, this story. Mm. Right even if it didn't happen in real life, right? Um, that is what it means to be like a grown-up religious person, um, is being able to do that. And um, yeah, you know, and I, I'm so I'm so appreciative, Gail, of you sharing um, all of that about, about your own story. And um, it, it totally makes sense to me that like, if you think people are going to hell, that that's an emergency. Um, that you mm -hmm. have to solve, right? That makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, and it's it's an interesting conflict um, for me now to have compassion for people who are... Uh, Evangelizing to me. You know? <laughs> no, because it's like, I... 
like they're coming from somewhere that is is so different from where I'm coming from. Mm. Um, but they really believe that they're doing something essential and and holy work and that they're doing something good for me, right? And I appreciate it. As, I, I appreciate that intention, even though at the same time, it feels like such an enormous violation. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And that it's like a hard thing to hold both of those things at once. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's something I'm trying to practice. Yeah. And I'm hoping that if there are any evangelicals that listen to us and I have high, high doubts on that, it's probably the ones that are starting to question things where the cracks are starting, but I'd hope that if they still had that perspective or take that they're saving people from hell, that they would at least consider and think hard about, um, the way it feels coming from the other, from the other side. Like you're trying to take the time to understand where they're coming from. I would want them to understand the offense and the harm and the hurt that could be done to Jewish people by taking this approach. Um, it's not something that I would have considered in my evangelical days, but I, uh, th- the concepts that drove me forward and drove me out of evangelicalism was this belief that love and you know was the most important thing and how to love your neighbor as yourself and that 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 being the core was something to me that, you know, made me, I had to ask these questions, you know, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What what would I want someone to do to others as you would have them do to you? These sort of teachings in Christianity that kind of helped direct me to question some of the other teachings that I was taught. Um, and in that line of even saving people from hell, I did want to ask you, it was really curious to ask a rabbi, um, the teaching of hell, is that something... I had heard different things. So as a Christian, I've been taught hell exists, especially as an evangelical, that's super core. In Jewish teachings, is hell a thing? Is that something, you know, we're not trying to save people, so I'm guessing maybe <laughs> not. Like, it's just... Okay, this is... The afterlife is another thing that Jews hold very lightly. Mm. <laughs> because there are a multiplicity of ideas, and none of them matter because God will figure it out, and it's all good. Um, but... <laughs> I like that. <laughs> we, yeah, we really, really don't talk about the afterlife in general. Um, we sometimes conflate two ideas, um, olam haba, which means the world to come, uh, which could mean both an afterlife, like an afterlife for the spirit. And it also could mean the world sort of reborn post-Messianic age, right? Um, the like literal resurrection of bodies and all, all of that stuff, right? Which is a historic um Jewish understanding of uh, the time of the Messiah. So, um, you know, those, both of those things are called Olam Haba, uh, which is like a little confusing, Mm. (laughs) right? Um, Many people teach that there's sort of like a a purification period for people's souls after they die. And that the worst possible, you know, person might be purified for 12 months. um, And then you all move on. Um, and um, and so there's this custom of saying the mourner's cottage, which is a, a prayer that's not actually about death. It's just like sort of a generic prayer, but people, mourners in particular, will say it as part of the service. Okay. Um, and that you don't say the mourner's cottage for more than 11 months, because if you say it for 12 months, you're saying like, I, my my beloved's soul needed to be prayed for for 12 months as they undergo this purification and that nobody's that bad you know uh, okay. <laughs> so like they're like the worst like, possible human <laughs> hilarious sort of you know mm-hmm. thing about that um little superstition about that um but even that is sort of like a very lightly held belief it's not really a thing that i believe happens mm. um i don't think that it's a thing that many people believe happens um but again, it's like it's we hold it very lightly. 
you don't have to be Jewish to get an afterlife. Like that's, you know, Mm. um, if that afterlife exists, Mm. right. And, um, and there's no expectation that people should be Jews, you know, like Jews are this, we are an ethnic group and it's cool. We can Mm. just keep on doing our thing. We approach God our way, right. We have this particular relationship. Other people are allowed to have different relationships with God. That's pretty Um, cool. And, um, and, you know, sort of none of that really impacts your, your soul post death. Hmm. Um, you know, even so this the like eternal, like, the yeah. eternal <laughs> conscious torment thing. It's not a thing. Not a thing at all. It's no. Um, and, and for anyone know, who's, yeah. uh, this, this is something that for, for me, it was one of the, one of the major things that started pushing me away from evangelical Christianity was an exploration of, um, that idea of the afterlife and hell and the the words that got translated into English from uh, the ancient Hebrew and the the Greek in the in the, the Christian New Testament and those words that got turned into hell in English that don't have any of those kinds of connotations in Koine Greek or um, ancient Hebrew. They're they're either things like the grave, simply put your your burial site or you know jesus talked about gehenna the valley Mm -hmm. of hinnom and he was making a reference to a certain story in the book of isaiah it was a very specific geographical location he wasn't talking about an afterlife and then there's also uh the greek word hades which again it's like the greek mythology that we then kind of i started tracing that word and its etymology and then the the word hell and how that got pulled in from Norse mythology and the, the, the realm known as Helheim and how that then found its way into English translations of the Bible. And none of that paints this picture that, that we end up getting from Dante's Inferno. (laughs) So it's almost as if the, the entirety of evangelicals um, conception of the afterlife and their foundational belief system is all based on uh, Dante Alighieri's book. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. I mean, I I think that uh, particularly around the time of the writing of the New Testament, there's a lot of more florid ideas about the afterlife in Jewish circles as well, hmm. um, and they haven't persisted in the same way um in the jewish world like there there was it was in this it was in the air like a lot of this stuff was in the air um and um but it has not become part of like sort of normative jewish conversations um Mm. that persist through time um so it's sort of an interesting thing like in tanakh there's no afterlife there's the grave and you like you go to you go to sleep with your your ancestors right like Mm. um it just doesn't exist Mm. um Resurrection exists, right? That's a thing that happens a couple times in Tanakh, mm-hmm. um, as so sort of like a miraculous one-off, <laughs> and like maybe yeah. a thing that might happen again. You'll, who knows? Um, and that was really grabbed onto by um, by Jewish thinkers about like what would it look like in the future in this olam haba in this world mm. to come. Like that would be amazing, <laughs> right? Um, so there's a lot of practices around like um, folks will. Uh, in some communities will put a little bit of dirt from the land of Israel into their graves. If they're buried elsewhere as part of this, like connection to this story about Hmm. in the resurrection of the dead, like 
it'll start in the land of Israel and spread out. So if you were like are buried with some of the land of Israel, it might start with you. Um, oh, wow. But I think this is one of these rituals that's sort of, again, held a little lightly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like there's a lot of rituals around death that are sort of in that spirit. Um, mm. But um, just sort of like a hopeful, beautiful connection rather than um, uh, a conscious belief in the right. part of the mourners. So before we wrap up, um, I did want to ask you, I think there was something that you had mentioned before we hit record, specifically regarding how anti-Semitism manifests. And I don't remember exactly what yeah, we you were mentioned. talking about how when we were when sometimes when we leave uh, Christian spaces, Christians, yes, can, that's you know, right. uh, we can we can deconstruct a lot of different things. Sometimes we take certain things that are unhealthy with us, even as we leave. So this idea that, you know, harmful teachings that we might be taught in Christianity, um, you know, white supremacy is one of the most Christian nationalism. There's a lot of things that get baked into sometimes our Christian beliefs. And as we deconstruct, we've got to pull apart a lot of pieces and not just ignore it and just close the door. And you'd brought up how anti anti-Semitism is one of those things that gets baked in um, and sometimes can carry its way outside. Um, so I'd love I'd love to hear you elaborate a bit more on that. Yeah, and, and I, be I would love to, to do that. Helpful to people wanting to. So some of the things that I, I might have brought up in that arena didn't come up in our conversation. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I want to just like point out um, in, very briefly <laughs> um, that um, anti-Judaism begins in Christianity historically mm -hmm. and um, and is around the attitudes towards Jews after the death of Jesus and after the crystallization of the early Christian church um, and its separation from Judaism. And, um, and a lot of those attitudes persist um, in Christianity. A lot of them have evolved and persist in, you know, white supremacy and Christian nationalism, like have really taken up these things and are mm -hmm. form. It forms a core um, of, of those beliefs. And, um, you know, it's really easy to take those things as though they are true, <laughs> right. Um, and leave Christianity and, and not leave those as well. Mm. Um, and I'm really, I'm appreciative of, um, many churches who are actually doing a lot of work around this, um, and around, you know, taking texts from the new Testament, for example, that are, have historically been, um, read in a rather anti-Jewish way, um, and reframing them either for their historical context or reframing them and pointing out like this was written specifically to be anti-Jewish, right? Mm. Um, and here's how we have to unpack that. Um, and, and that's really incredible, crucial work. Um, a lot of the churches in our, Nate, our area, mm -hmm. <laughs> I know are doing that kind of work and it's, it's so appreciated. Um, and I think it's not happening in other churches, right? Um, and so it's something that people have to figure out on their own. Um, I'll, I'll like point out a funny example. So, uh, the New Yorker, I used to subscribe to the New Yorker, um, like a lot of other people who like to own things that they're never going to read. And, um, <laughs> I feel like you're calling me out <laughs> and they published a cartoon one year, um, around, around Christmas that was, um, you know, a few kids who are sitting in the, in the living room and they're waiting for Santa to come down, uh, the chimney and they're like, Oh, Santa's coming, Santa's coming. And Santa comes down with a whip. And they say, oh, it's the Old Testament Santa. Oh. And I, I, I let go of my subscription mm. <laughs> after that. But this sense of the Jewish God is an angry and judgmental and, 
you know, harsh God, whereas the Christian God is very loving and saving and blah, 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 mm-hmm. right? Which is not how Jews experience God in any way. Mm-hmm. Like, this is mm-hmm. not a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, or the sense that, like, Judaism is legalistic, which I, you mm-hmm. know, I, I'm not entirely sure what that means. <laughs> but the sense of, like, Jews just don't get the spirit of being in relationship to God. And they're so realistic, wow. right? Mm. Um, and that's a that's a belief that persists, um, even if you don't hold the other half of the belief, right? The Christian solution to that supposed problem, right? Um, that um, that Christians are obsessed with, or that Jews are obsessed with money, right? Like that's why Jesus has to turn the tables because Jews are 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 robbing greedy mm. money grabbers, right? Like, um, and you know, like. All of this, right? Mm-hmm. This is a whole big piece. Um, even the sense of like that Jews are untrustworthy and um, because Jews rejected God, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? This, this like, right. It, it comes from uh, this like particularly Christian place of like Jews didn't accept Jesus in the way that we wanted them to accept Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means for Jews and their ability to be trusted and their ability to be part of the group, right. Rather than outsiders um, and suspect, mm-hmm. right. That's the thing that persists. Um, and you can leave aside the Christianity and still persist in those other beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, it's a thing to unpack. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it is, um, and it's not always obvious Right. It's like <laughs> some of this is very underneath the surface, mm-hmm. um, but some of it isn't. Right. So, um, you know, I've had folks call me a Pharisee and it's like, OK, well, that's mm. a compliment. The Pharisees were great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so Actually, glad you brought up this. Yes. One. <laughs> they were great. And Jesus argues exactly like a Pharisee um, in the New Testament. Like, I'm pretty sure he was one. Um, <laughs> right. Mm. But this like. Yes, rabbinic Judaism grows out of the Pharisaic movement. Movement, right? That was the the origins of the of rabbinic Judaism, and they're great, and mm. um, and we should be proud of them. <laughs> so, to any evangelicals <laughs> listening, or exactly to anyone evangelicals listening, or anyone still uh, having those opinions on Pharisee as um as a like, as an insult, yeah, pejorative, uh, using term, it yeah. like Pharis- pharisaical meaning, yeah, like you said, a pejorative me- meant as a negative. That is anti-Semitic, and that's important to recognize that that is a teaching uh, that comes out of Christianity in an anti-Semitic way towards the Jewish people. It's not how Jews perceive being a Pharisee. It's Pharisee is, is an actual group of Judaism that, yeah, like you said, Jesus would have came out of himself. So, yeah, stop doing that. <laughs> that's that's one of those. So I'm thankful for the ex- many examples that you gave because I think sometimes people don't know. Okay, well, like give me something, give me something mm. to start with, or some areas. But there's probably many, you know, that people can learn about and um, start to try and unpack it that are just baked into a lot of the teaching mm. um, that Christians hear. So I appreciate appreciate you sharing some. If you had more, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut off anything, but no, it's good. It's good. <laughs> it probably comes as like a very strange misnomer or misappropriation when you hear people say things like Judeo-Christian values, because 
What does that even mean? <laughs> and that makes me think, was it you, Nate, quoting Rabbi Arian to me, um, saying, talking about, I think he was quoting you to me, saying that you had talked about how Christians often see um, themselves as like a grandchild of Judaism, oh, like we come No, out- that was actually Rabbi Mark Katz, oh, okay. who came in and hung out at an event I was hosting and he sat down with Reverend Dr. Althea Spencer Miller and we had this great little conversation, but he mentions, I, I don't want to bastardize or completely misquote him, but the impression that I got from what he was saying was that there is this kind of misconception amongst Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, but this exists in other in other streams of Christianity as well, this misconception of Christianity as sort of I think you had said something along the, along these lines earlier of Judaism 2.0. Mm-hmm. Um, That's probably why I was making that connection too. Yeah. Whereas the Christianity that we see today and the Judaism that we see today are both evolutions of Second Temple Judaism and have grown and evolved from that in their own ways rather than being, uh, you know, Christianity being the next step or improvement over Judaism, rather these two, these two sort of sisters. That's fair. Yes, that, that's a fair reading. And I think that, um, you know, the place where it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting question, like early, early Christianity and like what was going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and when did normative Judaism of the time say, this is not Judaism, the thing that you guys are doing. Um, what was the line? Um, and I think it was at the point where, Jesus was God instead of a teacher. Hmm. Um, But um, when Christianity became no longer a Jewish movement, right? Which Hmm. happened fairly early, right? It was pretty Hmm. quick, (laughs) but still it was like, it was a generation, you know, or so, but like that was um, an interesting move, right? So it's like in that first century, these are both movements coming out of second temple Judaism and then Christianity becomes a thing that absorbs a whole lot of other people who are not Jewish. And it's not about Judaism anymore. It's about something else, but it's bringing with it um, the Judaism of that moment. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and evolving it into something else. So that's a very interesting picture. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, step siblings, siblings, something, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, something like that um, is, a, is a little truer yeah. um, of the moment. And there were other movements that came out of Second Temple Judaism that did not persist, mm-hmm. right? So, like, here we are. We're left. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> just the two of us left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are exactly. others. I mean, there's actually still Samaritans around, believe mm. it or not. There's some other groups still around. Um, and they're really fascinating, um, smaller numbers. But, yeah. yeah. Not Gnosticism as well is um, yeah. somewhere in that mix. Um, and there's like, you know, the, uh, one of one of my fascinations the last few years were these these lost texts that connect to um, ancient Christianity, but that were deemed not part of the canon of scripture mm-hmm. and yet hold a lot of weight in how we might perceive the faith. There were, there were arguments about this idea that Jesus actually resurrected. I mean, even if you look at the four gospel accounts that we have in our in our Bible, there seems to be a difference in opinion on whether or not Jesus actually came back to life. 
and there's um i think it's the the gospel of thomas that alludes to this idea that jesus was not bodily resurrected but rather who he was in spirit and his his teachings and ideologies persisted and the the death was so traumatic for his followers that they were perceiving of him after he had died in some kind of spiritual way or um or hallucin uh hallucinating way um and a lot of the church leaders needed this idea of Jesus bodily resurrecting to persist in order for some legitimacy or something politically um might have had something to do with relationship to the Roman Empire and so they shot down this narrative that Jesus was only being perceived in trances or in hallucinations and it also is kind of telling when you have the character of Thomas showing up as the doubter and being talked about as a doubter somebody who was doubting Jesus um was alive again and that yeah this sort of exists within the Christian history and then gets removed from our narrative which makes me kind of wonder about some of the motives of how like at at the foundation of of our um of our religious system but that's a conversation for another time <laughs> yeah that's a rabbit hole but i i do connecting connecting your idea Nate, to something that um that rabbi uh, arian said before when you were talking about um Nate mentioning you know resurrection and the debates around it i was thinking of what you were saying about um having a having an adult faith and the mm. idea that myth doesn't have to be um, something inferior, actually. It can actually be a rich, richer and deeper understanding of something. And I think my Reverend, uh, Reverend Ann said something on, at Easter, like, did the resurrection really happen? And she, then she was like, it's not actually an important question. <laughs> she was like, the question is, how do you apply this into your, like, how does this impact you? Which is like, I guess, coming coming from my background was like, I've never heard that before. And it was like, um, understanding how much, myths can be rich and beautiful um has 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 grown my faith if i can even say that from an agnostic point of view it has grown my ability to appreciate um and to live out uh christianity in a way that's richer and um so when I, you were talking about that that really that hit me just that idea of an adult faith and again you're putting words on concepts for me that you know i hadn't hadn't i haven't uh, been able to do but um i appreciate that i even helps me the conversations you have about Judaism disagreeing with each other and this idea of um, the texts having different opinions from each other. They're not one message. There are many different messages. Um, I think of what Nate was just saying about how these texts, you know, had had different um, opinions. And even the ones that did make canon uh, in the New Testament, the gospel stories of how Jesus came to be, there's like so many disagreements it, within the, the text itself. Like, was Jesus crucified on the third hour or before the seat of judgment on the sixth hour? Like, these are both in different gospels, you know, different, di like, and I could go through like 10 different things that are just different, but sometimes there's this idea that it's one cohesive message, even in our own Christian text, and it's not mm -hmm. actually true if you start mm -hmm. to dig into it. Um, and this idea of, I love 
that what you were talking about, about holding things loosely. Like when I was asking you, okay, what did, what did you think about this or about this? And it's like, <laughs> kind of hold the, the things loosely. Like it's not, we don't have to nail down which is the one, what's the true answer on this. It's like, you can have two ideas. I love that uh, non-binary thinking that you were mentioning about, um, you know, being able to hold more than one meaning is valuable. Not having to settle on one interpretation is a, is a is a mature thing to do. It's a it's a beautiful thing to do. It's a rich thing to do, and um, something yeah. I'm trying to expand mm. expand more towards. Yeah, it's something that I love about Judaism, and um, you know, I, I spoke about sort of the midrashic tradition of of expanding the text. There's also part of that tradition is figuring out like what to do with inconsistencies. Right. Mm. And putting two texts next to each other that seem to disagree um, or even two texts next to each other that are almost identical. Maybe they're off by one word and figuring out, like, how do we both harmonize things while also expanding the text at the same time? Like, how do we do both? And um, and it's an interesting um, it's just such an interesting piece of our rabbinic tradition of like trying to figure out how do we make all of these texts make sense as one one thing even though it's a multivocal thing right mm. um and um it's such a like it's delightful <laughs> we get all of that so yeah. you know I'll give you an example there's there's two um the 10 commandments are repeated in torah once in exodus mm. and once in deuteronomy and um there are two different versions of the commandment to observe shabbat in those two texts so one says to observe and one says um uh, I'm sorry. Like I can only think in Hebrew. Okay, so one says shamor, uh, which is like observe or protect or guard, and the other one says zachor, which means to remember. And um, and so you know, there's a couple things you could have done with that, right? So the rabbis could have said these mean the same thing. These are synonyms, right? Um, and they didn't do that. They said, you know, God would not have repeated it <laughs> in different ways if it wasn't relevant. Mm. They were different. <laughs> right um so they said okay shamor this guard and observe this applies to um sort of negative commandments around shabbat don't work right so guard shabbat by resting by not doing something right and the other one zahor means uh, it's a, the positive right to like bring in shabbat you know on purpose right mm-hmm. um to do something positive to bring it in and then there's like a whole delineation of what exactly do those things mean, um, right? But it's like a way of expanding, not just like keep Shabbat, like, you know, not it's not just one thing, right? It's like a whole universe of things. And when we do anything, sometimes we're pushing one thing away, sometimes we're pulling other things in, right? It's like we're doing all those things at once. And, um, and so it's important for us to be serious about what does the text actually say and where do they disagree, but not in a way that makes it smaller, Right. Always in a way that makes it bigger. Mm. That's um, that's beautiful. That's a great it's just a beautiful principle for any faith practice. I think even outside of Judaism, the idea of expanding a a sacred text in order to, yeah, to break to to widen it and to um, to push you towards growth rather than to make it narrow Mm. and uh, settle on one thing. Yeah. Yeah. I have loved this conversation and mm-hmm. I'm sure I feel like we could do this forever, but we do want to respect your time. And it's been such a rich conversation. And I feel like we could ask you so many more things and probably would love to. Um, which leads me to my question. Where can people find you if they want to look up your stuff? If they want to, I don't know if you've put out texts that you've written or, or things. Um, I really, I publish very, very little <laughs> because I have a full time job. <laughs> 
not the way I engage with the world. Um, mm -hmm. But um, people can always look me up at B'nai Keshet's website, which is b'naikeshet.org, um, or email me at rabbiarian at b'naikeshet.org. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be in touch. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll put so the, welcome. Thank, thank you. Yeah. I'll put those uh, links in uh, in the show notes so people can uh, can follow up. And uh, once again, thank you so much for spending this time with us, Rabbi Arian. This was, uh, this was amazing. I loved this conversation. So, Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. We're so glad you decided to join us today. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, and pretty much every other podcast app. Just search for Full Mutuality on your app of choice or visit our website, fullmutuality.com, for links to all of the apps that you can subscribe to us on. And if you enjoyed what you've heard, we'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website. A quick review is one of the best ways you can support us. Speaking of support, you can also partner with us on Patreon. For just $5 US a month, you'll be helping us produce this podcast and you'll get access to other content such as exclusive episodes, access to occasional live streamed recording sessions, and more. Just head over to patreon.com slash fullmutuality to sign up. Thanks again for hanging out with us today and we'll see you on the next episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast.